This story contains adult content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Previously on Out Alive. As we were starting to make our way down, the temperature just plummeted. Which is why the slope was so firm and icy. I was putting my right crampon down, and then it basically just slipped. I was looking right at them when they fell. I literally say, hey, this is it. This, this, is, uh, this is how I'm going to die. My head snapped back, and everything went black. I said something pretty quickly to the two rangers I was with, and uh, so that's when they started doing the amazing things they did that day. This episode is part two of a story we released last week. If you didn't catch it, go back and listen to part one first. After months of training, five climbers made a trip to Washington to summit Mount Rainier. Claire McDonald woke up ill and stayed behind at base camp while the other four climbers, which included Stacy Lytle and Ross Van Dyke, made their bid. After successfully reaching the summit, a storm front began to roll in earlier than the group had anticipated, turning the slopes to ice. Traversing a glacier, the group is on a rope team, and a fall by Stacy sends the whole group careening out of control down the mountain. After being unconscious for 20 minutes, Stacy wakes, surprised to be alive and to find two of her partners unconscious and the other dangling inside a crevasse. Her partner in the crevasse had become a human anchor for the group, stopping their fall and saving their lives. Everyone in the group had suffered extensive injuries. Stacy is the least injured and could only try to reassure her partners until help arrived. My role was just to keep everyone as calm and peaceful as possible. Peter Ramos, an expedition nurse who was also on the mountain that day, reached the injured climbers 1,000 feet below the summit of Mount Rainier and had begun assessing immediate medical needs. Uh, So I ran around to check on these four people that had fallen. Claire McDonald, remember, she stayed behind at base camp that day, saw the group fall and initiates a rescue. I think I knew right away exactly what was happening and how bad it was. There are two National Park climbing rangers who begin the trek up to the injured climbers. They climb 3,000 feet to help assist in the helicopter rescue. They were able to kind of stabilize our whole situation. And then a helicopter came in, and they were hovering above us, bringing everyone in, like, one by one. David Bulger from the U.S. Army Reserve was the pilot in command of the helicopter that day. When I first got the call, I wasn't aware of how dire the situation was with the climbers or how bad the weather was becoming. The helicopter used for this rescue is a Delta Model Chinook, If you're not familiar, they have a tandem rotor system, making them extremely powerful, maneuverable, and loud. There are three pilots on board that day, two up front and one additional pilot to keep an eye on the cliff face, a crew chief working the winch, and a flight engineer. Additionally, David's crew picks up two paramedics from the nearby Army Hospital and two more of the National Park's rescue climbers. Climbing rangers are considered elite members of the National Park Service. They undergo extensive training in professional alpine mountaineering, aviation, technical rope rescue, avalanche forecasting, backcountry skiing, and emergency medical services. One of those climbers was Nick Hall. Uh, We lowered the hoist to the personnel 
and lifted up the first climber with uh, with no issues whatsoever. But the winds were so bad that when we got the litter on the ground the second time, uh, that was when the incident with Nick happened. When the Chinook came back and was lowering the sled for this uh, next person, who I was hovering over him, uh, protecting his face from the downwash from these propellers of the helicopter. The uh, flight engineer is calling the hoist distance off the ground. He tells us he's made contact with the ground, and then he tells us rescue climber has uh, unhooked the cable. So as the sled was coming down, I saw Nick Hall reaching for the sled. And he goes, okay, cable's clear, I'm bringing in the cable. And I bent back down to cover up the victim's face. And the next thing I hear is, oh God, he fell. I was anchored into the hillside and then I felt something hit me and it pushed me down the slope a little bit and I had to momentarily rely on my anchor to keep me from falling down this steep icy slope. And I looked over my shoulder and I saw what looked like a human rocketing down the slope. I quickly looked away as I realized what had just happened and I couldn't quite watch the rest of it. It was just kind of chaos all at once. Everyone's yelling into their radios. You heard lots of things going on. And then it was just like silence. I lift up off the ground, I do a pedal turn. As I do, I see a shape just plummet over this, this cliff, you know, 20, 30 yards away from the left side of the aircraft. At the time, I didn't know what had happened, and I definitely didn't realize the gravity of it, but I, I remember kind of sensing that, like, something had, like, not gone according to plan. I remember hearing a voice come over the radio and saying, can someone go down there and check if he's still with us? I nose the helicopter over, and I start just following him down the mountain. I get to, I think, 8,000 feet, and I turn the helicopter back around, and I start doing a zigzag pattern back up this gully looking for him. And uh, I see him at the base of this cliff, and I come up over top of him. We hover over him at about 100 feet for a, for a minute or so, looking for any movement, any, any response. And we realize we need to drop someone to him, but there is no location around here to drop anyone. So I moved back down the gully by about a quarter mile, uh, maintained that hover. One of the rescue climbers jumped off the aircraft and started making their way back up to Nick's location. And uh, at that point, we were extremely low on fuel, uh, went back to our helipad, and uh, that's when the coordinator came up to us and told us that the, the uh, climber that we had dropped off had made contact with, uh, with Nick, and uh, um, he was uh, passed away at the scene.
Nick Hall was a veteran of the Marine Corps, a ski patroller, and an EMT before he joined the Park Service Climbing Rangers four years prior. That was a pretty surreal moment to realize that 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 truly was what just happened, that Nick Hall had fell. He, he slipped and fell down 3,000 feet on Mount Rainier. Everyone was at a loss at that moment in time. It was quiet. Luckily, this ranger spoke up, uh, and he said the plan now is that uh, those who can go down, go down. For us, I mean, yes, we were, we were, we were shocked, but we had a mission to do, and we weren't going to leave those, those other people on the mountain. So uh, we went back up there and, uh, and continued the mission. There were still three injured people in the party on the mountain with two rangers as the rest of us walked down the slope with assistance of Park Service. Since this, this, uh, this whole operation had taken so long, now we were starting to look at sunset. And I knew it was going to be really tight, but I thought we could do it. I didn't think they were going to make it um, as this storm was pure whiteout. And then by the time we got down, the winds calmed for sunset, like final light of the, of the evening, the last opportunity. Uh, we heard the Chinook flying in the air again as they're going to give it one final go during this sucker hole of calm weather to try and pluck off the remaining injured party. The next two climbers went the way that I wish the entire mission did. Just a couple minutes for each climber and no issues whatsoever. It even seemed like the wind died down there for us for just a few minutes. It was, it was perfect. Ross, who is in excruciating pain from his injuries, is finally loaded onto the sled. So they take me up into the helicopter, and I just remember when they hooked me, I was like, had this feeling of euphoria of like, I'm going to be okay. Because I was the most, it's like the least injured, um, the helicopter was going to bring me up last. And at this point, there's this pretty substantial storm blowing in so that there's like massive winds coming off of the ridge above us. So the helicopter is like battling all of this the whole time. And when you're trying to hover over an area with very little contrast, not much to see except for sheets of white ice and snow um, in high wind conditions, it's kind of like trying to balance on the head of a pen. Um, the pilots have to take turns hovering because it is a, a, a taxing endeavor for you. And especially on that day, I can tell you that uh, up, it, up to and after that day in my career, I've never experienced hovering conditions that were that uh, difficult. They put me in a, like a shelf, think of it like bunk beds, but they're like with, a, with litters. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, don't hit the mountain, don't hit the mountain, don't hit the mountain. The, the cliff face was you know, 20 feet away from our rotor system on the right-hand side. And my pilot in the, in the left seat was hovering the helicopter. The sun was going down uh, behind the ridge line in front of us, okay? We lowered the chunkle penetrator. It's, it's kind of a seat. As soon as the penetrator touched the ground, the rescue climber hooked her in. And my pilot said, I have lost all outside visual references. 
I need you to take the controls. And what had happened was when the sun went down below the ridge line in front of us, all of the snow around us turned just uh, a uniform shade of gray. So I take the controls because I can still see out my window one footprint from a climber. And that is my visual reference point. And I'm, and I'm holding a hover, maintaining just on that one footprint as long as I can. And I, I held it for about 20 seconds, which was long enough for the rescue climber to get the, the climber secured into the seat. So they're about to bring me up. I'm like harnessed in, ready to go. Well, the footprint disappears with the setting sun. And they're counting down. And I remember them saying like three, two, and then just before one. The aircraft started moving left, right, back, forward. And the rescue climber on the ground sees what the helicopter's doing. He runs up and he tackles me to the ground and I feel them unclip me. And then I remember hearing them yell into the radio like, go, go, go. My flight engineer says, climbers clear of the cable. Let's Just get, get out, out of here. here. At that point, we said, okay, that's it. There's nothing else we can do. And then the helicopter just took off. It was me and a couple of climbing rangers. And I just remember them being like, cool, so we're here for the night. We felt terrible because, I mean, we knew she was uninjured, but we wanted to get her home. She had, she'd had such a, a, for lack of a better term, a, a bad time up on that mountain. We wanted to get her home and get her safe. I'm like, I'm so cold because I had been completely, I mean, I'd been out since 2 a.m. that morning and it's 10 p.m. at night. Like, I'm the coldest I've ever been in my life and had also, like, thought I was going to die earlier that day and was completely traumatized. We felt terrible, but we knew there was there was no other option. I mean, when we landed, I went up to the pilot I was flying with and I said, hey, in my... At this point, I had uh, 10 years of flying experience. I said, my 10 years, I think that was the most scared I've ever been. And he looked at me and he goes, I've been flying for 30 years and that was the most scared I've ever been. I like spent the night like wedged between these two incredibly kind rangers. Um, and we had all kind of had this like hope and expectation that the helicopter was just gonna come back the next morning to get us. And so we were like all kind of like expectantly hopeful. I had the, the next day off, but I talked with um, two of the pilots uh, the next day, and they actually, they went up there. They climbed as high as they could. They got above the cloud layers over Mount Rainier, and they tried to find a hole in the clouds that they could circle down through, um, and they could not do it. And for the next, I think, 10 to, four, 10 to 12 days, it was just completely socked in up there. So we wake up the next morning and open the tent door, and it's like a complete wide out. Can't even tell which way is down. And one of them just hands me an ice axe and is like, cool, it's go time. At that point, I realized, like, okay, this is just, you know, you thought the challenge was over, but, like, it keeps going. Like, you have to continue to kind of, like, rise to this occasion. And I didn't know if I was capable, I guess. I didn't know if I was capable of, like, what I had to do. So we started hiking down. It's super steep. You can't see anything. And I remember for the first part of it, we're like traversing along the, the crevasse that my partner had been dangling inside of. And I 
just I, all of the images of the day before I kept flashing in my mind and it was just like unending. But there was one point where, because we couldn't see anything, we couldn't figure out a way to get around this one pretty big crevasse. So we just kept going like up and down and around and just couldn't figure it out. I was so completely out of energy and like just um, energy, like physical energy, emotional energy, like mental willpower that I did not think that I could physically take another step. I'm not one who really like, I don't really give up on things and I certainly don't give up on like being alive, but I was just, my tank was completely empty in every regard. And I was willing to accept that the consequence of that would be me dying there. I asked one of the guys that I was with, I was like, hey, can you just like dig me a hole and just leave me here? Like, I think I'm done. I think like that was probably the darkest moment that I have ever had and hopefully will ever have. And then I remember he got very close to me and was like, this is when you find out what you're made of. This is when you have to dig deep because this is the moment that it matters. And so I stood up, I kept walking, and over the course of the day, made it all the way down to the trailhead. Like there were news cameras there, which was kind of mind blowing. And they snuck me out. And I remember like running through the woods and there's this car waiting and they like pushed me inside and closed the doors. And they take me to this house further down the road and there's a guy standing there and he says, there's someone here who I think might want to see you. And he like opens the front door and my parents are there. You know, my mom just like drops to the ground and is sobbing and like my dad is crying and then like I'm crying and I'm just like, how did, like, how did all of this happen? And like, how did I survive and how am I still here? And then also like, how do I move forward? Earlier that day, Ross was taken to Madigan Army Base where he learned the extent of his injuries for the first time. I remember being wheeled in um, on the gurney and I remember them telling me that um, you've suffered a dislocated hip, um, that you um, have also suffered a pulmonary embolism. So I had a blood clot in my calf and a piece of that blood clot broke off and went through my heart and splattered into my lungs. Um, and they said, hey, it's probably going to be about a year until you can walk again. And I just remember at that moment, like I didn't care. I mean, I, I can still see it today and it, it makes me um, emotional every time I talk about it. But an army officer walked in and asked, um, are you Ross, are you Ross Van Dyke? And I said, yes, yes sir, I am. And he said, um, I regret to inform you that there was a ranger that was killed in your rescue. And, sorry, um, and I just lost it, I just, I, um, I I couldn't believe that what had happened to us caused the death of somebody else, not to mention the fact that it wasn't even our own party. It was an innocent person who was just trying, trying to help us. You know, we kind of went into that with, you need to be totally self-sufficient. Nobody's going to come help you. This is Claire McDonald. And then when help was needed, there were experts right there, willing and capable and their whole lives were committed to helping folks and then for one of them to give their life in that uh, it's just a lot to think about this was so much deeper than just like a really traumatic day for us 
Someone literally lost their life and like made the ultimate sacrifice, you know, just trying to save ours. I was pretty numb about the events of, the, of, of that mission uh, until my drive home that night. This again is David Bulger, the helicopter pilot. Around one in the morning, I, uh, on the drive home, I, I just pulled over and just started shaking. It just, it, it all kind of hit me. I don't think it fully hit me. Like I knew in my head, I knew logically what had happened, but I don't think it like hit me emotionally for a few days. And I think watching the memorial service and just seeing all of the people that were there and realizing like, this was a person who led this incredibly rich life. I don't know, like he was someone's son, he was someone's brother. Hi, thanks for coming out today. My name's Aaron Hall, I'm Nick's brother. The loss of a brother is pretty tough. He's my only brother. You know, he's the only person that, uh, I think he's the only person on this earth that could uh, know what I was thinking without talking. Just the world's just gonna be that much more of a lonely place without him for me and I'm gonna miss him a great deal. I met with uh, Nick's family at his memorial. I, I learned a lot about him. This is a guy who dedicated his life to helping other people. And my, as always, my thoughts and prayers go out to, to Nick's family. I mean, they, they suffered a, a great loss and uh, he, was, he was a wonderful man and he'll always be missed. On behalf of the Mountain Rescue Association and all Mountain Rescue teams, thank you for allowing us to be here. This is an adaptation we call the Rescue Mountaineer's Prayer. When I am called to duty, God, wherever people fall, give me strength to save a life, whatever be the call. Help me embrace a little child before it is too late, or save an older person from the horror of some fate. Enable me to be alert and hear the weakest shout and quickly and effectively bring my neighbor out. I want to fill my calling and to give the best in me, to bring my every neighbor back to their family. And when it happens, on some day, my earthly tasks must end. Please bless with your protecting hand my family and my friends. I've um, recovered uh, physically. I think more than anything, it would be, you know, carrying on um, I don't know how to put it into words, but essentially, you know, carrying the weight of, you know, the loss of somebody. Because there was a lot of friends who have said, and, and I don't disagree with them, that, hey, that there was a miracle that happened that day. But sometimes I have a hard time wrapping the miracle of us living with the, um, the fact that somebody died in that process. And so that's, that's probably something that's tough and that I still, you know, to a great, great degree, still carry with me today. 
when I originally wrote to the Hall family, I really, despite this horrible, horrible thing that happened, I wanted them to know that there was a human on the other side of it that really cared deeply. Um, and my hope was that there would be a relationship that came with that, but it's definitely been um, a slow process. I mean, I think that it went from exchanging a letter here and there to um, a huge moment for me personally was when um, Carter had reached out and said, do you, um, you interested in going bear hunting? And I was like, bear hunting? Um, yeah, sure. I could see Ross's pain in publications. This is Nick's dad, Carter Hall. When Ross came to visit Maine last September, he came to do a bear hunt, okay? So I explained to him, I said, Ross, I said, it's a little difficult getting you a successful bear hunt and you're only gonna be here two days. This is what he responded. I don't care, Carter. We came to visit you. I initially, and my intentions were that me being there would be healing for them. But in reality, I think that it was that much but more for me. I will say that I was nervous, maybe scared slash intimidated. I, I didn't know that um, Aaron was gonna be there. And so I was um, had not had a lot of correspondence with Aaron. And the, um, the opportunity to be able to be with him was was sincerely and utterly humbling and one that I will never forget riding in a pickup truck just he and I on these back roads in in Maine far exceeded the euphoria that I felt standing on the top of Rainier you know I would put it as one of my greatest life moments you know Ross one way or the other had reached out and, and maybe the others haven't. Maybe they didn't know how they could reach out. You know, I, I don't know what this, I don't know what everybody needs to learn and feel in this whole scenario. I felt so ashamed. I just, I couldn't let go of the idea that I hadn't spoken up and I was the one who fell. Even though there were a lot of things that went into us taking that fall, my lack of gracefulness was sort of the catalyst for all of this catastrophe that happened. And I didn't know how to grapple with that feeling because that's so heavy. But after seeking out therapy, I realized that I wasn't guilty of anything. I didn't do anything wrong. I slipped and I was really ashamed that I had been imperfect. Because it's not the perfect version of myself, right? Who wants to kind of wear the imperfect version of themselves on their sleeve? We did not make all of the best decisions that day. We were not perfect people that day, and it led to a lot of really horrible things happening. But that doesn't make us any, that doesn't make us, and that doesn't make, I guess, me any like less worthy of love. It doesn't like make me any less strong. And like the thing that I constantly tell myself is like, you're going to be okay, and like, you will survive this. This episode is in honor and memory of Nick Hall. We 
We have one final episode of Out Alive this season, and it is a special episode you won't want to miss. Why do some people survive situations that others don't? Does your gender affect survival? Can you improve your odds? What's happening in your brain when you feel fear? And can you rewire it so that you can make it out alive? We'll get expert answers to all this and more when our season finale airs on August 5th. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates, and story editing and sound design by Matt Coderre. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio, Inc. Thank you to Stacey Lytle, Ross Van Dyke, David Bolger, Claire McDonald, Peter Ramos, and Carter Hall for talking with us and sharing your stories. A special thank you to Mount Rainier National Park Climbing Rangers and Search and Rescue. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review. 